Welcome to Fick Focus, where Bloomberg Intelligence fixed income, credit currency, and commodity strategists and analysts discuss their short and long-term views on debt markets and issuers. Now, here's the Bloomberg Intelligence Fick Research Team. Welcome to the Fick Focus Podcast. My name is Ira Jersey. I am the Chief U.S. Interest Rate Strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence, the research arm of Bloomberg LP. This is the Macro Matters edition, so we go over to TD Securities Head of U.S. Interest Rate Strategy, Gennady Goldberg. Gennady, thanks very much for coming on Fick Focus. Thanks for having me, Ira. So we're both interest rate strategists, and obviously the market has been up in arms because we've seen a pretty significant sell-off since uh, since the middle of uh, of August. We've seen a lot of volatility. You know, talk a little bit about your read on the market. Why have we seen this kind of volatility recently? Um, and then maybe uh, you know, maybe besides root causes, maybe what's your view on where we go from here? Sure. So I think a lot of the sell-off recently has been driven less so by some of the technicals. I mean, I've heard a lot of explanations being thrown around. I mean, one of them was supply, and that's certainly you know, possibly a contributor. Um, one of the things that we think is driving this is just the repricing of Fed expectations. And I think that's a very reasonable expectation right now. Um, you've got the um, the pricing for 2024 cuts having been really trimmed down. Uh, it's only about 115 basis points or so. It was about 140 basis points just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, you've got the pricing for the, the trough rate, really. basically the, the rate at which the Fed ends the cuts, at least the market's projection of that. Um, that's actually decreased, uh, uh, sorry, increased pretty substantially to about 3.8% from 3.3. Um, all the while, you know, risky assets are doing okay. And you, know, you take a step back and you look at this market and you realize this is a market that's penciling in a softer landing. Or at least more consistently penciling in a soft landing, um, you know, kind of a hook, line, and sinker sort of view that uh, the soft landing is going to be uh, the way forward. We're a little bit skeptical on the softness of this particular landing. I mean, we've done a lot of work looking at some of the past cycles. You know, soft landings tend to be few and far between. They really require a lot of uh, coordination. Uh, you know, it's not easy to actually get a soft landing delivered. Um, and this time around, we've got, you know, the, I would say, you know, the most coordinated, the most aggressive rate hiking cycle, not just in the U.S., but globally since the early 1980s, um, as well as quantitative tightening happening all over the globe, not just here, but in Europe and other locales as well. So I think the kind of the background for delivering a soft landing is a little bit tougher this time around than perhaps it has been historically. So, you know, all, all my long way of saying is we do think rates will start to trip, uh, start to come down over the course of the next year. Um, we've actually got cuts penciled in for the Fed starting in March of next year. We do expect a gradual slowing in the economy and a recession in the first quarter. Um, and we've got 300 basis points of cuts penciled in for 2024. You know, that's a lot higher than the market. But I also think, you know, the market is right now pricing in, you know, kind of a bifurcated scenario. Either nothing happens next year and rates stay put or you know, something bad happens and we go down a lot in rates. And I think that's what that market pricing is reflecting. Yeah. So, so that's interesting because we've pointed that out a lot as well, like looking at things like options on SOFR futures and um, and some other derivatives instruments for 2024. And what we find is, is very similar to what you just said, is that the market is thinking, you know, the market's currently pricing a... Um, 
the median of a or or the mean you know weighted average kind of uh, kind of thing between the fed basically on hold all of 2024 or a, a very meaningful number of rate cuts right so so several hundred basis points of rate cuts so you know talk a little bit about how you think about that how can investors play those kinds of bifurcation is is there uh, you know are there trades that you find particularly interesting within that environment you know particularly given your view that the kind of more bearish case for the economy and bullish case for rates tends to be your your base case view which which by the way we broadly share right and and what i find is there's a whole lot of disagreement right now uh, so i'm i'm do i am glad we're on a similar page uh, ira so you know i do come into meetings a lot of times with you know, very opposing viewpoints. You know, there are some folks who don't even expect the landing this time around. They think the cycle can keep going well through 2024. And others think that we're right around the corner from, you know, a material downturn in the economy. So, you know, I like to look at where the risks lie. Um, and I was talking about, you know, the most coordinated global rate hiking cycle since the 80s. You know, so far, what, what have we seen break? We've seen, you know, UKLDI. We've seen several banks in the United States. I do still think that pressure is on. So I don't necessarily think we're out of the woods yet in terms of the impact of interest rate increases. So, you know, the way that I like to think about it is where are the risks? And in my mind, the risks are to the downside. So you've got the market penciling in, call it 110 to 115 basis points of cuts in 2024. The Fed themselves in their relatively benign downturn scenario has 100 basis points of cuts. Um, so I like being long rates. Um, the issue is the entry point. And you know, as, as you well know, and, and, and I think this is what you're seeing play out in markets right now, especially in relatively thin August, is folks don't have a lot of conviction. Everyone's trying to stay very close to their index. Everyone's trying to not get run over by these very large market whipsaws. Um, and they're trying to play this as best they can. Ideally, there's a lot of folks out there who want to buy rates at these levels. I think they're attractive. You know, you're looking at 4% plus for 10-year treasuries. You're looking at you know, nearly 5% for two-year treasuries, all of these rates are very attractive. The worry that I hear a lot from clients is not so much about the next kind of 12 to 18 months. I think everyone kind of is on the same page that the economy will probably slow down by then, um, and most likely substantially. It's really the worry about the next three to six months. Are we right at the peak in terms of rates, and are cuts really re around the corner? Um, and if you think that they are, you should be really adding to your long positions here. But again, a lot of investors have been trying to do that in the last three to six months, and they've gotten very burned. And, you know, there's, there's a lot of that going around, unfortunately. So to your point, it's it's the 24th of August. We just had a print for the uh, the jobless claims numbers. They came in a little bit lower than anticipated, a little bit lower than the week before. Um, you know that had, like you said, a, probably an outsized move in in the two year right. The two year <laughs> yeah, two year Treasury sold off three basis points on uh, you know a 10,000k uh, beat on on terms of jobless claims. So it's not exactly like you know that that would be a should be a massive move really given. Um, you know, given the environment, given that it wasn't that big of a of a surprise, really, well within you know standard error. So, so when you talk about liquidity, let's talk a little bit about then things like quantitative tightening, right? Because that's been a story that we've we've talked about recently. We're actually in the process of writing a note about that ourselves. Um, talk about the way that you think of of liquidity in, in the market 
and maybe the relationship with things like the repurchase agreement market, things like quantitative tightening, obviously, that um, you've heard some members of the Federal Reserve recently mention that uh, they think that quantitative tightening can continue even if the Fed's cutting, which, of course, it theoretically is possible, but is it practically possible? So, you know, can you talk a little bit about liquidity, funding markets, and the, and the like? Absolutely. Yeah, and I don't really share that view, unfortunately. I, I, I suspect from the tone of your voice that you don't either. I mean, theoretically, yes, you can, you know, take with one hand and give with the other. So you can actually, you know, deliver cuts while also tightening through quantitative tightening. But I don't really buy that. I, I do think that as soon as the Fed starts to actually ease policy, um, they'll probably discontinue PT relatively quickly, maybe instantaneously, maybe just a little bit shortly thereafter. So in my mind, that's the biggest unknown in terms of Treasury's funding needs. So if you're thinking about this from a supply perspective, you know, that's an enormous amount of funding that the Treasury wouldn't have to do for the following year. Right now, they're letting about $60 billion in Treasuries run off every month. That's cash that needs to be raised in the private market and basically given back to the Federal Reserve, um, who then effectively, you know, in, in digital parlance, puts it in a shredder. And that's how we get a, a decrease in, 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 in money floating around the system. But, you know, if that goes away, that's a lot less issuance that the Treasury has to do. Um, right now, in terms of kind of the, the monetary functioning side of things, I, I, I'm pleasantly surprised to see it actually go better than I had expected. I had thought that a lot of money funds would hold on to this reverse repo facility um, and that they wouldn't actually pivot quite as much as they had into treasury bills, especially at these levels. You know, I wouldn't call treasury bills necessarily cheap at these levels, given their levels versus OIS. They've certainly cheapened up, but they're not exactly screaming cheap. So it really depends on what kind of happens going forward. If RRP balances stay high and you continue to see outflows from banks, you continue to see um, you know, more buying of bills by non-money fund entities or you know, money fund entities using kind of the new cash that they have coming in, um, that could put some downward pressure on reserves in the system. And I don't think we're actually that far away from the minimum. Um, you know, we're right around 3.2 trillion on the reserve side. I think the minimum has probably gone up given the banking pressures. Um, you know, most banks I've spoken to are keeping precautionary levels of reserves. Um, and that suggests to me that maybe it's no longer kind of two and a half trillion, which is where what we were estimating before this um, before this recent move. Maybe it's something closer to 2.8, 2.9 trillion. So we're not that far away from potentially having a, a bit of a September 2019 episode. But I do think we're far enough away where, to your point, the Fed's not really paying attention to that right now. Right. They're more concerned with monetary policy than the monetary functioning at the moment. Yeah, one of my issues is always when, when they talk about um, cutting, uh, continuing QT as they're cutting, is that at some point, right, and, and regardless of where that, you know, I call it the reserve tipping point. Some people call right. it the lowest comfortable level of reserves, like whatever you want to call it, like you, you just mentioned. You know, we, we do estimate it's 2.5, 2.6 trillion. Um, you know, if you were at 2.8, I, I agree that there's probably a, a higher propensity to to hold reserves just as a as a backstop, given some of the some of the angst. 
Um, but but at the end of the day, what will ultimately happen just from a, a practical perspective is that as you reach that lowest comfortable level of reserves, you end up having the re- uh, repo facility, which is an asset on the Fed's balance sheet, start to go up. So it'd be kind of weird if you know you have assets running off at $75 billion a month, but the, re- but the repo facility goes up by $75 billion a month. So the assets stay the same, reserves stay the same in aggregate. What's the point, right? So <laughs> it's, right. I, I just don't see the point of the Fed actually continuing asset runoff if it's just going to be replaced with repo, right? Like, like why? And, and, and I think that's actually a wonderful point. You know, I, I haven't quite heard it made like that, but, you know, I, I think that's a great one. Uh, it wouldn't make a whole lot of sense for, for the Fed to basically give with one hand and take with the other. You know, I think at that point they would jump in and reconsider. And like I said, I, I do think they're just much more focused on monetary policy than monetary functioning for now. And I think when push comes to shove, and Ira, if we get that scenario coming through, I would bet, you know, dollars to donuts, the Fed would probably discontinue QT in that scenario. Um, yeah, so we were actually on the same page as that. I, I really need to start getting people on who disagree with me more. But um, <laughs> <laughs> let's. Um, but so so let's talk a little bit about the global situation, right? So you had mentioned before that you think that it's that most of the sell-off has been a repricing of Fed expectations because of the better than expected economic environment that we've had, which is completely reasonable. But you have had other things, right? The Treasury Department issued three billion dollars more of ten years this year, two billion dollars more of thirties. Excuse me, this month, um, which was. Was a little bit higher, certainly than, than we expected. Maybe you had uh, different expectations of, of what the how the Fed was going to, uh, excuse me, the Treasury Department was going to announce refunding. But but let but there were other things going on too, right? So you mentioned the coordinated global hiking cycle. One of the things that moved ten-year Treasuries ten basis points on a three o'clock on an afternoon uh, a couple of weeks ago was the Japanese reducing its uh, or, or widening the band of its yield curve control. So the the reporting came out the three o'clock in the afternoon. That night, uh, after that that reporting came out, the the Bank of Japan actually implemented that new policy. How important is the are the global um, central bank dynamics and some of these um, you know coordinated QT, if you will, in, in some ways um, affecting the treasury market and and can can that be sustained? Right. So so a lot of times you get these big moves because of these announcements, and then treasuries kind of go off on their own path, whereas you know boons or or JGBs can go uh, can, can go do their own thing thereafter. Right. And no, that, those are great questions. And and I do think the supply pressure is certainly part of it. Um, you know, I can't discount that completely. It just seems to me that, yes, you know, the Treasury announced a little bit more of an aggressive refunding plan um, than most folks were expecting. But it, it's really not in keeping with the size of this move that I think that, you know, I, I, I think the move is a little bit bigger. Hence, you know, I'm a little bit more biased towards maybe attributing it towards kind of Fed expectations. But on the on the foreign demand side, I, I do think it's hugely important. I mean, Japan's been a huge buyer of treasuries over the years, so has China. And I think it's worth addressing those individually. I mean, on, on the Japanese side, what we're likely to see is a gradual kind of float in 10-year JGB yields. Um, depending on where they're settled, you know, if they settle here, that's great. If they have another 20 or 30 or 40 basis points of room to go, and the Bank of Japan is forced to step in and actually conduct purchase operations because there is a lot of upper pressure in Japanese interest rates, you could see some reverberations into the U.S. market. Buying by Japanese investors this year has not been huge. So in that sense, we've already seen a lot of the foreign investors step away. So to some extent, you know, they're not the marginal buyer this year. In fact, the marginal buyer this year has been actually domestic ETFs and mutual funds. That's been, I would, th- I would say, the big story. China is the other worry as well. 
So if China continues to backstop their uh, renminbi uh, and actually conduct uh, uh, you know, operations to, to defend their currency, that involves a sale of U.S. Treasury securities. And that's certainly gotten the markets quite nervous because China is a huge holder of treasuries. They've certainly decreased the amount they hold over the last uh, five to 10 years, but they still hold a lot of treasuries. And if they do have to sell those for intervention purposes, uh, that could put some upper pressure on rates. So there are these, you know, I don't want to call them technical points, but the demand side from abroad is not particularly strong, while also the supply side is calling for, you know, higher uh, issuance of, of U.S. Treasury securities. And and I think, by the way, you know, on the refunding side, I think the Treasury will continue to increase auction sizes, at least for the next two quarters and maybe even further, because the deficits are quite huge. The financing costs are going up. Um, and there's not really a whole lot of relief coming with the 2024 election in sight. So, you know, it doesn't create a very good technical backdrop for U.S. Treasury securities outside of what happens on the macro front. Great. Well, that was U.S. interest rate strategist for TD Securities, Janali Goldberg. Thanks very much for coming on FIC Focus. Thanks for having me. And now we turn to interest rate intro with Will Hoffman, who's an associate in the Bloomberg Intelligence U.S. rates team. Uh, Will, what uh, interest rate intro question do you have for me today? Hey, Ira. Thank you for having me, as always. My question today is on 10-year yield technicals. Given last Tuesday, we approached, floated around, and briefly broke through uh, the October yield highs from last year. Could you talk a little bit about where we may be headed next on a technical front uh, and what people can expect going forward? Yeah, well, we had a pretty big uh, bounce. Like we, we did not convincingly break that uh, 4.34% on uh, on the 10-year, and then we we subsequently bounced. Some people are calling the uh, the recent move maybe a uh, short covering rally, which is maybe in, in part true. Um, we we did get obviously some some additional data that wasn't maybe as strong as some people thought, and some of the ISMs, the S&P ISM numbers that came out were, were a little bit weaker. Um, so you know, importantly, and I, I think this is always the risk management part of um, of investing is okay. We if we do break that 4.34, you know what. What's the next major stopping point? Um, interestingly, there's not a lot of technical levels from uh, the recent past that we can look at. So uh, Anthony Feld, who's our our, uh, our chartered um, market technician, who helped me put out this uh, a piece earlier this week, and one of the things that he noted was um, we could wind up going all the way up to 4.72 percent, which is an old resistance from uh, from 2009, actually, <laughs> that we would have to go back to in order to uh, excuse me from 2007. Um, that we'd have to go back to in in uh, uh, if we do break convincingly that 4.34% level. Um, and then above that, we're talking about levels above 5%. So so there are some people, and, and Janati just mentioned some of these, is that there are some people who are very bearish to the market. There are people who think that we can get 5 or 6% uh, 10-year Treasury yields, which obviously there's a a distribution within the world that, where that's possible, um, although I think it's it's unlikely that we break that 4.72% at least this cycle, right? So if we, if we have another downturn in the economy, it's it's you know mo- much more likely than not that we'll see a significant rally in, in ten-year Treasury yields. Now next cycle, could we break that and wind up at six percent or something like that? Absolutely, right? That's completely possible that we've kind of turned this forty-five-year downtrend in yields and and we may continue to make higher highs as a 
opposed to uh, uh, higher, uh, uh, lower highs as we have during prior cycles. So with that, I would like to thank uh, Janati and Will for both coming on this version of the Fic Focus podcast. I've been Ira Jersey. If you have any questions or comments, please hit us up on the Bloomberg Terminal. And we'd appreciate it if you hit subscribe and rated us on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, be well. Mm-hmm.